Welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Liz Kelly. With the Super Bowl in the books, I wanted to let you know about all of our coverage across the site. We have Kevin Clark, Robert Mays, Roger Sherman, and more breaking down every aspect of the game, including winners and losers, key plays from the game, and the halftime show performance. Also, make sure to check out our YouTube channel where Kevin Clark talked to Amari Cooper on So Newsday, and Roger Sherman chatted with players from each team for their thoughts leading up to the game. Be sure to watch and subscribe to our channel on youtube.com slash The Ringer. All right, my hungry homies, my taste buds, my culinary comrades, we have done it. 2019 is rolling along, and we are eating some delicious food. You've made it to the house of carbs. Food podcast for the hungry people, by the hungry people. It is on the Ringer Podcast Network, and I am your hungry host, Joe House. What an incredible show this week, my friends. Hugh Atchison, the iconic restaurateur, chef, media star, author. He's got his own podcast now. Hugh Atchison stirs the pot. I had to have him on to hear what he was up to with this podcast. Uh, we we love hearing about, about new and exciting food podcasts. So Hugh comes on and tells us all about it. Of course, we're hitting the best thing I ate this week. Danny Chow is on to talk about this incredible meal he had for Lunar New Year. And I have to share with all you hungry homies what I ate for the Super Bowl. You know it's on the gram, but I'd like to tell you a little bit about some Popeye's hacks that we're shaking up. Let's get in that belly with the homie, Danny Chow. All right, Taste Buds, on the line, as promised throughout 2019, the resident food journalist, the resident food critic, the resident food correspondent for the ringer.com, Danny Chow. Hi, buddy. Hello. How's it going? How are you? Great. Okay, my man. I, I, you I'm, know, I'm f- it's just the trade deadline is, is a lot. And so, you know, I actually promised, what, like last, last week or two weeks ago that the Food Diary was going to come out. Soon after my Raptors piece, I'm gonna have to delay that a little bit, but uh, it'll be worth it. Yeah, the the hungry homies understand. They know that you're wearing two hats, at least two hats for the ringer. There's a you could easily wear a third hat. You know, your underrated talent, uh, and I enjoy it on the Instagram, is your 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 musical taste. You're mm-hmm. you're a really good curator of of some 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 sounds that are. You know, don't come to me naturally. Be in my midlife crisis right now. <laughs> I need somebody, you know, with with the the intellect and wisdom to be peeping out. Who you had somebody on the gram just recently? I just loved it. I can't remember what it is. I mean, was anyway. it was it a rapper or was it harp music? Because I I tend to it listen was, to both. It was a rapper. It was a okay. rapper. I mean, you know, I still like to pretend I can bang them out. <laughs> anyway. So, uh, yeah, the hungry homies understand you're a little bit uh, otherwise occupied. I know you ate something delicious this week, though, mm-hmm. as did I. So let's compare notes on the best thing we ate this week. I'm going to go first. Uh, I had a wonderful Super Bowl meal. Now, we did a, a great job of strategizing. I had Mallory Rubin on, and she really helped me focus my thinking on the correct way to tackle my Super Bowl feast. I wanted to make sure... We dotted all the I's and got all the T's crossed. I went with Popeye's. Yes. Uh, two two big boxes, two 20-piece boxes of Popeye's. This is for four of us. And uh, <laughs> three sides. You know, I, I love the Cajun rice. I like the red beans and rice. I like to take the red beans and rice, mix it with the Cajun rice, and some, some cooling coleslaw because you know I like the chicken. Oh, man. Spicy. And then our, our beautiful host, I was with my friend Amy McDonald uh, at Small Craft Liquors. She was on uh, last summer giving us some delicious recipes for the the um, cocktails that she makes. She was the host. She made a beautiful hoagie, uh, as, as is you know kind of appropriate. I don't know uh, what do you call a giant sub in L.A. What do they call it? I mean, it, it's it really depends. I, I guess we call it a sub. Yeah, yeah. It could be. It's a grinder. It's a hoagie. It's sure. a sub. I know that this is a. The, the the debate amongst those various uh, names r- rages on, and and they're regional, and I know I get all of that. In in any event, it was a a terrific meal. You can't beat Popeyes for the Super Bowl. I felt like I won the Super Bowl. 
Um, so that was the best thing that I ate. I mean, anytime I have Popeyes, it's going to be the best thing I ate. Although the sandwich was terrific, and and Amy made a, a beautiful batch of uh, a, a beverage that was bourbon based with um, some some uh, lovely boysenberry, some blackberry, and uh, a little bit of a, a pineapple kind of flavor. It was just really citrus at this time of year on the east coast you, you, you're, you're dying for it so it's really good <laughs> yeah amazing yeah so so talk to me i know you I, had something special recently well yeah well i mean first of all i i just uh one minor critique i think you you might have doubled up on the rice like i feel like it's either the cajun rice or the red beans and rice i feel like i feel like you're really sleeping on the uh the mashed potato experience at, at popeyes here's the thing this is great i'm glad we're having this conversation when I buy the red beans and rice, you know what I do? I I take a a, a knife and I shave all the red beans wow. out from around the rice and get it into its own self-contained place and leave that white rice after I've carved all the red beans off of it. That that white rice is for later, it, or it can be discarded. I, the red <laughs> beans go with the Cajun rice. So it ends up being red beans with with um, uh, ground beef and a jalapeno rice, and it's that's it, that's delicious. Gotcha. Okay. All right. I'll I'll I'll, you, you, I'll I'll buy that. You'll accept that. Yeah, I'm just I'm just a sucker. I'm an absolute sucker for for Popeyes's uh, mashed potatoes. So that but it, isn't the best thing. Isn't the best thing about the the mashed potatoes of Popeyes the jalapeno gravy? Yeah. No. Absolutely. That that's so if you one hundred percent if you can get them to serve the jalapeno gravy. Now I have done this before. I didn't do it for the Super Bowl. You could get a side of jalapeno gravy gravy and have that over the Cajun rice with the red beans. Now I'm starting to think. I think I would. Here's here's what I would do. I think I would get the gravy on like one of their like chicken po'boys. I'll just oh. get that like drenched and almost turn it into like a like a dipped. Like, you know, sandwich. I've yeah, never done like, that before. Like a, but that sounds pretty good. See, we're we're doing Popeyes hacks here on the fly <laughs> for all the hungry homies. We've got a multitude of of Popeyes hacks that we've just introduced here. Because you know, you could also get some tenders yep. and get some of the the jalapeno gravy with the tenders, and then just get one of the rolls to, for whatever sandwich they're serving. That all by itself has its own. Oh man, uh, uh, you know, there's a real creative element there. I. I let, let's keep let's you and I keep up on this Popeyes <laughs> hacks uh, uh, vibe. We we're, there's some we're, we're gonna share. Yeah, we'll, we'll come up with something when we're together. I'm coming out to L.A. in a few weeks. Oh, perfect. We'll sit yeah. down and map this out a little bit, and then maybe we can take some pictures and we'll enjoy it together. Yeah, and we'll report back for for all the the homies. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So tell me what what what, what did you eat and what was the occasion? Okay, so yeah, so on. Tuesday, that was the Lunar New Year, and uh, for the occasion, I went to a special pop-up dinner by uh, a chef and writer named Jenny Gao, who has basically been spending the past, I don't know, like six years or so in Shanghai doing a bunch of pop-ups that kind of reflect her heritage, and she her, her whole thing is kind of educating, you know, Chinese people and and people around the world pretty much about Sichuan food. Uh, that's where she, that's where her parents are from. That's where she's from. Um, and she's kind of bridging the gap between kind of like these old timey traditions of Sichuan cuisine and kind of more modern techniques and stuff like that. And so if you're not familiar with Sichuan food, it's, it's very spicy occasionally. And, and it, it uses a special pepper uh, that creates this kind of numbing Novocaine sensation in your mouth and so when you're eating this food it becomes like highly addictive because you're you're feeling things that you wouldn't normally feel in most styles of cuisine um let, let me interrupt you can i interrupt yeah, you for a second absolutely i'm fam i'm familiar with what you're describing by way of ordering um mala uh from a is that so it, it, is the broad category Szechuan and then Mala falls underneath a Szechuan? So Mala is is basically describing two the two different sensations uh, that you can feel when you're eating that type of cuisine. So one element of Mala is the numbing and the other one is the spice. And so basically you're combining Ma and La. And so that essentially fuses these 
these two different sensations into one. And so mala is kind of that sensation that you're feeling. It's not necessarily um, a separate section of the cuisine. It's, it's more describing a, a very elemental part of eating that type of food. So that's interesting. I I go to a restaurant that has Szechuan in the name, mm-hmm. and on the menu it has a series of dishes that are you can have mala beef, you can have you know right. various um, proteins or vegetables served in what they are characterizing as a mala style. And now I'm wondering if oh no, that's that's to- just it's basically just telling you that it's going to be both numbing and spicy. That's, that's I see. Yeah. So because Szechuan to me uh, carries a meaning. It, it, you know, I know what it means to order Szechuan style. I mean, I love the Szechuan lamb at this one restaurant that I order from. Right. Um, the lamb is super tender and, and the morsels are, are, are scrumptious. They're perfectly sized. But when it, when they're, when it's served, the sauce is, you know, spicy with like a red kind of peppercorn, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a typical kind of chili and, um, a heavy dose of julienne vegetables. And that's what my my brain sees and thinks when when I order sort of Szechuan style, um, but not necessarily with the mala um, flavoring as as part of it. Right. Yeah. And part part does, does that of, make sense, or is that is that like an Americanized version of Szechuan? I mean, it's it could be a little bit of both, really. Like yeah, sure. When you're when you're traveling to these restaurants, and a lot of them are trying to cater to a certain clientele, you know. Part of it is kind of fig- kind of doing that little dance of, of figuring out, you know, what a- appeals to a certain palate and what they can kind of bring back from their own taste memories of home. And so it's kind of like a, a an almost fusion of of I don't know sensibilities that they have to kind of that makes weave weave into, you know, their that dishes. makes perfect sense. Yeah, I I interrupted you though, and I'm sorry to have taken you on this tangent. Actually, I'm not that sorry because I find it kind of fascinating. <laughs> yeah, the whole of point of of this show is to learn. So, um, but but please continue this meal you had with at, at Jenny's place. Yeah, so Jenny is a person that I've I'd interviewed a few months ago for a feature that I'm working on. Uh, hopefully published sometime this year. Uh, although I'm not sure, I'm still kind of doing the reporting for it. Uh, but we've kind of kept crossing paths actually. Uh, I ate roti with her in my recent trip to Toronto. Uh, that's oh, that's where awesome. her parents live. She's a Chinese Canadian. And so, yeah, we've just kept crossing paths. And she was like, hey, I'm throwing this dinner if you want to, you know, swing by. And I was like, absolutely. I've I've actually haven't had your cooking before. I've only had, you know, these sauces that she creates. She, she actually bottles um, Sichuan style sauces um, and tries to, you know, do it in a way that's, not so overly reliant on, you know, um, you know, industrially produced MSG. She's trying to really uh, get natural flavors to produce that that you know umami flavor. Um, and you, I, I think you can buy it online. Her her company's called Fly by Jing. Um, and so yeah. So this, I, I wait. I'm st- I'm, I'm tapping the brakes. Spell it. Fly by F L Y B Y. Yeah, Jing J I N G. J I N G. So yep. that's flybyjing.com or just look up flybyjing and you'll uh, get there. Yeah, just look up, look it up on Google. You you'll be able to find it. Okay, awesome. Yep. Um yeah, and so she was throwing this dinner uh in Hollywood and there were a few standouts. Um she served one one of the first dishes that she served was a uh, hamachi crudo, which is not something you would imagine really in the kind of Sichuan, you know, uh, collection of dishes that you would imagine. Uh, coming from that style of cuisine. Uh, it's honestly one of those dishes that's like, oh, okay, if you go to a trendy restaurant, you're going to be able to find it on on the appetizers menu. Um, Guilty. Guilty. And I order it every time. Yeah, I love it, it's, it's super, I'm a sucker it's, for it. It's super overdone to death at this point, yeah. but it's, you know, it's, it's a really easy way to showcase good fish, you know? Um, yes. And, and what she does is she kind of infuses some of that Sichuan sensibility because she infuses the ponzu sauce, you know, the uh, the kind of acidic, vinegary, yuzu, citrusy flavor mm. with yes. these Sichuan peppercorns. Um, so Sichuan peppercorns, uh, one way of translating it uh, is they're usually, they're occasionally called tribute peppers. Um, and this is because Sichuan peppercorns way back in the Qing dynasty of China were so prized that they used to be only offered to the emperor as a tribute. 
And so mm. it's kind of like this history lesson. It's kind of like, you know, infusing that with a very hip, very identifiable, like modern, you know, restauranty dish. And it just worked. Yeah. It, it just worked. You, you know, you get a little bit of that numbing flavor, but it's just a very recognizable hamachi crudo. I was like, oh, this is brilliant, you know, because uh, the the Sichuan peppercorns actually come from the citrus family. And so you kind of get that kind of like lemony essence. Mm. So it just kind of adds yeah. to the the ponzu sauce that they they poured on top of the fish. Um, Terrific. Yeah, uh, it, it was great. Um, you know, it, it was kind of like this interesting mashup of, of tradition and non-tradition. Like tradition holds on Lunar New Year that you're supposed to be served a whole fish bone in, uh, which is supposed to symbolize abundance. So, it, you know, you're served a whole fish, you eat the whole fish. Um, that's supposed to be good luck. And you're supposed to be, you know, able to uh, uh, accumulate, you know, riches and, and et cetera, and, and et cetera. Uh, what she served, however, was cod cheeks, which, uh, oh. yeah. So fish cheeks are actually like probably the best part of the fish. Like in terms of the, the actual quality of the meat, I yeah. I do remember when I was a kid, like my dad would always save me the cheeks, um, mm -hmm. and I I thought you know on one hand this might be bad luck because we're not we weren't eating a whole fish, but on the other hand it kind of reminded me of my childhood and it kind of reminded me that you know sometimes it's not always about abundance, sometimes it's about you know the quality, not the quantity. You know, how does one separate the cheeks? from the, the head for the purposes of serving the cheeks? Um, that's probably a better like question for like a butcher, but <laughs> I've, I've always had like my, my dad, well, I mean, it's pretty obvious where the cheeks are. So yeah. it's, it's really just taking, you know, either a knife or, or a fork or even chopsticks. If, if you're cooking the whole fish, it's pretty easy to just kind of slide it out. It just kind of yeah. So like you don't have to out. be super delicate, right? Yeah, it's not no. like uh, um, uh, brain surgery. Yeah, but but what comes out is basically this fully formed like fish nugget. Like it's a, it's an entire mm. morsel of meat that's like tender and it, it's but it still holds its like firm integrity. Um, it's a very clean tasting um, you know piece of the piece of the fish. Um, yeah, I, I mean it's always been my favorite just because. You know, I, I was I was the youngest child of my family, and so I was always pretty much reserved all of like the best parts. Um, so <laughs> yeah, so you know. And what about the flavor profile? Or did, um, was, or was yeah, it? It was served with. Um, I'm starting to forget what it was served with, but it was like you know deep fried, crunchy like elements. Oh. I, I think it was like a pepper that was deep fried wow. to, to the point where it was like almost dehydrated, and so you kind of get this like counterbalance between uh the fish being very tender and yeah. these crunchy little bits and it it, it all had a, a a strong um you know cuminy flavor which is also very um prominent in Sichuan food um incredible yeah it was great that's so that 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 counts as you had uh two two best things would you let's let's not rate one above the other they're they're two distinct things but wow uh, anything else from that meal? Oh, there there are so many things from that meal. I, I think let let me count the number of things she served. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. There are, there were ten dishes, so they're all small, you know, and served family style. Uh, there were a, a few cocktails available that used uh, okay baiju, which is yeah. a Chinese liqueur. Um, and she actually she actually made like a Negroni out of baiju instead of using gin and so you oh, you know crazy. you add like the amaro you add the vermouth and everything um it was great had you had that before uh i've had baiju cocktails before but i'd never actually had it served as like a negroni but we actually ended man, up oh, taking man. baiju shots and the shots were delicious uh it's from a producer called ming river um, okay so yeah if, if you ever see ming river like check it out because it Honestly, it tasted very good as a shot. I'm not. I'm not trying to put you on the spot. Did you take pictures of any of this? I did, but the weird thing is, uh, it was in a very hip like art gallery space, and so all of the lighting was like super red. Um, 
And so the pictures definitely did not come out very pretty. Uh, yeah. Everything was kind of washed out in like this red light. Uh, so, <laughs> I mean, I have a couple pictures, but like it's it's there's actually one on my Instagram right now. But uh, yeah, they they All didn't right. turn out great. Okay, well, I maybe I I don't have a recommendation. I'm no expert at at, at taking the pictures. Um, but but uh, I mean, you know, we need to document these these kinds of beautiful journeys like this, right? Uh, and I, so I appreciate in between Baju shots that you were, you did your best. <laughs> you know, it, I, I would be, you know, derelict in my duties if, if I didn't take, if I didn't actually, you know, attempt to take pictures. I agree with you. Yeah. I agree. All right. Danny Chow. That was a beautiful best thing that you ate. Uh, shout out now. Th- does Jenny do this pop up, um, as a thing where she, where people from the public can go attend, or is it this this mainly for like friends and family? Uh, this one was uh, actually via tickets, so you could have you could have bought uh, tickets. I I don't know if she has any coming up, but this was her first in LA. Uh, but oh, cool. yeah, just uh, definitely follow her because she is definitely an authority on uh, this cuisine. Yeah, so if we're if we're following her, you can also follow. Um... Fly by Jing on Instagram. Yep. It's at Fly by Jing. Fancy yep. that. Um, that might be a way also to to track what she's doing um, in LA, right? Yep. Okay. Good times, Danny Chow. As always, I'm looking forward to hear the next delicious thing that you are eating and sharing with you. My delicious thing. Thanks, buddy. Absolutely. Back to the deadline grindstone. <laughs> Make sure you eat. <laughs> yeah. All right, as always, my thanks to Danny Chow. We have an incredible interview with Chef Hugh Atchison coming up. But first, quick word. You know what's smart? Anytime you see a pop-up by Jenny Gao in Los Angeles, California, get yourself a ticket and get yourself some delicious Szechuan cuisine. You know what else is smart? Going to ZipRecruiter.com slash carbs to hire the right people for your business. ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in these United States based on trust pilot rating of hiring sites with over 1,000 reviews. Why? Well, because its technology identifies people with the right skills for your job and actively invites those people to apply so you get qualified candidates fast. Right now, House of Carbs listeners can get the Zip Recruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash carbs. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash C-A-R-B-S. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Taste Buds Today Show also brought to us by our pals at Hotel Tonight. This winter is a great time to check out Hotel Tonight. Whether you want to get yourself off on a spontaneous ski trip, President's Day is coming up, or you want to escape to a warm beach hotel tonight makes it easy to book a room with one of their last-minute deals. There are tons of empty hotel rooms out there just waiting to be booked. That's how Hotel Tonight scores such incredible rates. They team them up with awesome hotels to help them sell those rooms, and they pass the savings along to you. These are not last resort type joints either. Hotel Tonight works with cool top rated hotels you actually want to stay at. I'm telling you, when I was uh, looking for New York in November and the Taj popped up, that was not a bad one. Unlike other travel companies, you don't have to scroll through endless lists of hotels. Hotel Tonight shows you the best deals at great hotels, along with short profiles that have pictures, all the info you need. And even though the name is Hotel Tonight, they're not just for last-minute bookings. You can play things by ear or use the Hotel Tonight app to book in advance. And when you join Hotel Tonight's HT Perks program, the more you book, the better the deals get. To start scoring amazing deals at incredible hotels, go to hoteltonight.com or download the app now. Oh, my taste buds. Let me tell you, when you get a true cooking icon, a giant in the game of, of cooking, of restaurateurship, of authorship, of, of, of good deeds, it's not possible to run through the entire resume and all the awards because it would take up the whole show. 
My guest today, my hungry homies, he's an award-winning chef, of course. Check that box. He's an award-winning author. At least five cookbooks out there. Check that box. He is a TV star as a judge on Top Chef and as a contestant on Top Chef Masters. And honestly, we got, I mean, if we're going to do this properly, I got to tell you, hungry homies, he's a very handsome, very handsome Canadian to boot. Ladies and gentlemen, so pleased to welcome Chef Hugh Atchison to House of Cards. Oh, my God. It's so good to be here. Chef Hugh, how are you? I'm awesome. You are awesome. So, look, you have a brand new podcast. I believe it debuted today. It is called Hugh Atchison Stirs the Pot. Your very first episode, again, with another sort of true cooking icon, Tom Colicchio. We are going to talk about this podcast, but that's not where I want to start. We can start anywhere. That's what I want. Awesome. You know where I want to start? Ottawa, Canada. Ah, bucolic, boring Ottawa, Canada. It's a beautiful <laughs> city. It's You'll freeze your balls off right now up there, though. Um, it is. Uh, yeah, I was born and raised there. So I'm an economist. Very uh, uh, good place to grow up and. Started cooking there because I uh, didn't gel well with school. I come from an academic family, but not really into the school myself. Um, and uh, just worked through, you know, skipping school, playing pool, you know, that type of thing. So let, let, let's do let's do some connecting of the dots, because I personally, as I was kind of, you know, thinking about this and, and um, considering our time here together, how's a 15 year old kid from Ottawa, Canada? become, you know, sort of well-versed in, in French cuisine, find himself in San Francisco in some of the, you know, most acclaimed restaurants in that uh, enormously successful food city, and then find your way to, to, to the South, to the Southeast, to, to Athens, Georgia. Help me connect the dots there. I was living in Ottawa. I had lived in the States when I was quite young. Uh, I was, I lived in Atlanta for two years in Clemson, South Carolina, which is a great football town, but boy, it's the most boring town in the world. Um, <laughs> moved back up to finish up high school in Canada and uh, then meandered around for a while, Montreal and Banff, Alberta, and eventually um, went with uh, my then girlfriend who was going to become my wife. And we, she was American and had been born in Athens and wanted to do grad school down there. So we went down there for two years. She did her master's. And then we moved to San Francisco for two years. Then we came back and uh, set up shop in Athens. And I opened up my first restaurant. At, uh, I think it was like 27. I felt like about 12, but yeah. <laughs> but you, So you, you had Athens in your blood before you made it out to the West Coast of, of the, these United States. Yeah, and going to San Fran at that time was great. I mean, it was like right before the complete evisceration of the dot-com bubble. Um, but, you know, rents were still relatively okay. But, you know, living on a chef de cuisine salary out there was not ideal. So worked at a place called Mecca for a while. Worked at Gary Danko, opened up that place. Uh, and then came back and with uh, very little money, opened up my first restaurant, 5 and 10. Yeah. So what was the style of cooking you were doing while you were out in San Francisco? You know, modern French ideas translated through the prism of California larder and the California ingredient set. You know, I mean, even back. So that's like 98, 99. I mean, I don't yeah. think firm to table came up as a term really until maybe the early 2000s. But I yep. mean, you know, everything we've done, it just wasn't co-optable as a term yet. And, you know, but that's the way I grew up cooking, you know, food in the Gatineau Mountains around Ottawa, Ontario or Hull, Quebec. And you just utilize the stuff that's in the larder that's coming up seasonally. And same thing in California and the same thing here. But the southern larder became really what I fell in love with just because it's totally interesting. There's a train going by here, but don't bother that. that that's the atmosphere. No, that's atmosphere. It, it, it lets everybody know how we're keeping it real here here on House of Carbs. Um, yeah, so I'm interested in in like how did five and ten come together? What was the inspiration for it? And they, you know, what'd you do in terms of scrambling to get your, yourself started? And what that original like um, menu concept was? 
Ah, oh, shit. I remember the first day opening, I looked out and Michael Stipe and Burtis Downs were sitting out there, um, both from REM, uh, Burtis yeah. REM's manager. And I, you know, it, it, we just, I was trying a really simple rectangular box of an old brick room to do just really good food as a community inspired restaurant that would, that could make it and deliver something to the community that they hadn't had before. It was an excuse to be a destination restaurant in a small town, but not overtly fancy. That would have been a death nail. Um, but it, you know, it was really working from the cuff and and doing whatever we could to get by. You know, it's like it was true chefdom for me then because it was all encompassing. As you walk in in the morning and go clean the urinals and the bathrooms, and then do all the accounting in the office from eight until ten. And then go start cooking and butcher fish and butcher lambs and make sauces. And then all the rest of the kitchen crew would start rolling in. And But I did everything. I ran the floor. I did the wine list. Um, but it was great. I, I loved it. Well, And, you, and you mentioned the, the Southern Larder. What did you find was available to you um, as 5 and 10 got going that was different from, from your experience in San Francisco? It's funny that around here, they really had become susceptible to the big box truck. You know, the, the Cisco's of the world, you're rolling up and unloading, you know, pre-cut fries and sauce bases and stuff like that. And so when we opened up, we kind of uh, opened the back door, so to speak, um, and and tried to find farmers real really nearby who would be able to raise product for us and find the guys making country hams like he's always done for you know, hundred years in his family, but nobody had been buying them. And, and so, you know, you start to realize then that they're old school farmer's market. I mean, we didn't really even have a farmer's market at that point in time in Athens uh, of the modern ilk of farmer's markets that, you know, now where they sell really expensive beets and stuff. We had a state run farmer's market and you go by and buy uh, black eyed peas and something like that. And the woman be working with it. You know, she's got three fingers on two of her hands and uh, she's feeding uh, field peas into a sh- into a sheller, um, a mechanized sheller that she's lost a couple of fingers in along the way, I'm sure. Um, and then they had, you know, tons of different corns and things like that. But it was all the old school state farmers market. It was really kind of a uh, good product, but a dr- weird, dreadful environment in a lot of ways. Um, so I'd go out there and buy a lot of product there. I started to find different varieties of okra that we, people were growing. You know, they're big agriculture schools like Clemson and UGA is a big ag school too. Uh, so there are some resources to look through and then um, getting in touch with, you know, uh, different uh, county agrarian specialists who tour around to different people. And then they tell you who's making cheese and who's got a ton of duck eggs. And that's kind of how it worked. So where did the instinct to open the back door come from? Because that's, you know, you just described kind of the challenges that you encountered once you opened that back door and went out it to try and find some folks that that were producing um, locally sourced stuff that would be uh, something that you could, could you know, uh, cook according to your vision. W- where did open up the back door come from? You know, I worked at a restaurant in Hull, Quebec, uh, back in the day called Café Henri Berger. It was a French place and a pretty palatial old school restaurant. I'd been there for like 80 years at that point. And there was this guy named Bing and Bing would come once a week and or twice a week. And one day he would bring venison that he had raised on his land of the Gatineau's. And then on another day, he would bring a bunch of shiitakes that he had raised. And then other times a farmer or a hunter would come in with a bunch of partridges, you know, full, complete partridges. You'd have to feather them and everything. And and then, you know, cheesemakers would come in or different people raising different products or the local syrup, uh, maple syrup person. So, and that always like was a narrative of food that I was totally into, that, that food was a greater relationship than just pressing a button to order uh, a case of flour that if we could show the stories of food, that it was much more interesting as an anecdotal thing to sell, but then it was also to prepare and generally it was much better quality and I could trace it and it hadn't gone through gazillion middlemen in the, in the, in the quest to get to the table. So, but again, you know, it is prior to farm to table as that reasoning. Um, so we just continued on that bent and, you know, but there's a ton of agrarian history in the South and there's a lot of 
difficult culinary history to come to terms with. Um, right. Uh, the, the the history of the South is amazingly interesting and layered, but totally fucked up. Uh, so, you know, we had to purse through that and figure out what we do, what we do with all of that. And then when you've got a Canadian kid cooking, uh, you know, chicken and dumplings, you're going to get a couple of raised eyebrows. I just have one eyebrow, so it's a lot. Yeah, easier. that's well well done by you. I meant to mention that with the one eyebrow. Yeah, yeah, it's, you got to sit what you got. <laughs> but so, right? How did you uh, navigate that? Right? You 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 are a Canadian kid uh, cooking chicken and dumplings, uh, and folks, so, you know, take a give a yeah. look at that. I mean, I I think that from an outsider's perspective, sometimes when you're doing a deep dive into knowledge, it helps not to be affected by, um, by by your grandmother's version of something. You know, in the mm -hmm. South, if you make uh, jambalaya in, in New Orleans or in Louisiana, it, it, it's it's very difficult for anybody to compare it to anything but their grandmother's cooking. So I don't have that, the weight on my shoulder of that family history. So I can look upon it purely from my imagination, reading it in understanding the concept of it and then turning on its head a bit because my background's in French and Italian food. So it's just, right. it, it just becomes a better or a, not a better way, but just a different way of looking at food of the South. And just that like delicate dance of interpreting it based on your experience and orientation, but at the same time, making sure folks understand that you are honoring the, those, those traditions, those food ways that existed before you were, you arrived that that's the dance, right? Yeah, I think it is. It's a careful dance, but uh, we've done it pretty well throughout the years. Um, I step on my feet, my own feet once in a while, but it's, I think you've got to pay homage to what's here uh, and the history of a dish or a culture that exists here and make sure they're woven into the narrative that you're explaining a dish as to. Um, but I'm never going to make it exactly like your grandmother's because I, I didn't know her and I didn't eat that growing up. Um, so it, it's just, it's become a good way of doing it. There's some dishes that I just don't want to cook because they're so close to the heart. Uh, I'm trying to think of like, specific ones, but like burgoo and things like that, like Southern stews sometimes are just like, there's so many different variations on it and everybody's is always the best. And it's, it's hard to, to parse that. And there are also some rustic things, uh, you know, Southern food comes out of poverty. It's a reaction to poverty and endemic poverty throughout the ages. And it's a pretty thrift, thrifty cuisine. And I don't also just want to, glide on the coattails of that and make something into fine dining food. I think we've steered away from this sort of um, high-end shrimp and grits. You know, shrimp are, you know, you were ubiquitously cheap on the coast of South Carolina, Georgia. Um, and that was a food of basic necessity to to make some grits and put some shrimp on it and call it dinner. So I've always been a little bit careful not to want to totally just ride on the coattails of Southern food and be a sort of what I call pity Pat's porches, Southern food restaurants. Yeah, sure. So that's a nice segue. Hungry homies, quick break from this great chat with chef Hugh. I want to tell you about to kill a mockingbird on Broadway Academy award-winning screenwriter and playwright Aaron Sorkin was recently on the Bill Simmons podcast discussing his long career in great movies and shows, including The West Wing, The Newsroom, and The Social Network. Aaron has a new play on Broadway. It's an adaptation of Harper Lee's Pulitzer Prize winning To Kill a Mockingbird, I believe you've heard of it, which has recently voted America's best love novel of all time. To Kill a Mockingbird has become one of the most popular and toughest tickets to get on Broadway. It has set the record as the highest grossing American play in Broadway history. It's also been selected as a critic's pick by the New York Times and has been called one of the greatest plays in history by NPR two-time Emmy Award winner Jeff Daniels from the newsroom in Godless and many, many other places, walks of life. Jeff Daniels, he's incredible. He's live on stage as Atticus Finch 
Listen to these reviews. This is from Variety. One of the greatest stage successes of this or any Broadway season. It has not played to a single empty seat. That's Brett Lang saying those those beautiful words. From Rolling Stone, five stars, unforgettable and unmissable. All rise for the miracle that is Mockingbird. That's the inimitable Peter Travers. Well, and, and and so listen, To Kill a Mockingbird is sold out for the next several months. Uh, but tickets would make a terrific Valentine's Day gift when purchased for available performances this coming summer or fall. So you can go ahead, buy the tickets now, and you say, we're going to go on a trip. So you get a little bit of two-for-one out of it. It's a Valentine's Day gift, and then you go enjoy the gift later summer or fall. That's pro style. Tickets are available directly through telecharge.com or the show's website to kill a mockingbird broadway.com. Uh, after five and 10, um, you've had uh, great success with another couple restaurants. One uh, also in Athens, the national that you opened up with, with Peter Dale. And then Empire State South in Atlanta. It's funny. I was out to dinner with some folks on Saturday, and we were talking about eating in Atlanta because the Super Bowl was just there. And a guy just spontaneously volunteered to me, you know what the best place I ate, I've ever eaten at in Atlanta? Empire State South. And I, uh, you know, it's it's one of these moments where I have to say, well, it's, as a matter of fact, I'm talking to Chef Hugh just this week. I mean, yeah, I sound like a dick, but, you know, um, it was a nice uh, uh, for, fortuitous uh, coincidence that that um, this guy volunteered that. And, and, and here we are talking. How about um, the national? How that come come to be? And, and what was the vision there? Yeah, that's a funny story. They, uh, the chef, uh, my partner there, Peter Dale, uh, is a wonderful, wonderful human and a really gifted chef. But um, he's he really hadn't been cooking at all. He was working in D.C. as a uh, he said he was in working for then House of Representatives from Georgia. House of Representative uh, Nathan Deal, who later became governor of Georgia. Um, and Peter got a little disenchanted with political life and quit there and moved back to Athens. And he said, I, I think I want to cook for a living. And he traveled really well. He's got a lot of family in Spain and then in South America. And so he started cooking for free at five and 10, just to learn more about food, eventually became a sous chef. And then we started talking about business and we uh, struck upon a deal with a woman who was opening up a really cool alt cinema in Athens uh, called Cine. And we'd occupy a front room of it doing very Mediterranean food, very Spanish and, um, Northern African and Mediterranean style food. Um, and so it was a hit. It's a tiny restaurant. It's like 55 seats. And then there's six seats or 10 seats at the bar. So it's really small, but it's been really amazingly popular place. And, uh, much of the credit of people like Peter, who you, you know, I just, I love to find people who I enjoy working with that I can create a pathway for them to succeed as well. So it, uh, and that's the best way to grow and it's, it's totally natural way to grow in the restaurant world. Yeah. And then how about Empire State South? Empire State South is our bigger restaurant in Atlanta. Uh, I'm glad you didn't go on Saturday because we're closed for private events for all the Super Bowl stuff. Uh, <laughs> Visa, we were like the headquarters of Visa. Um, and, but uh, yeah, it started in 2000. Uh, wait a minute. I'm going back in my head. 2010. And started. I just wanted a midtown restaurant that would serve it. It's, it's in the bottom of a very large building. So it's like 30-story building. And they wanted breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And I felt like I could do that if I just mimicked the idea of a hotel restaurant almost. But it just it's become this like all-day affair. Like really good Southern-inspired food. A little more technically savvy and a little more modernist than the other restaurants in a lot of ways. Really big wine program. Amazing cocktail program. And we kind of concentrated on the bookends. I uh, wanted a coffee shop involved. So you'd begin your meal with a great cocktail and end it with a great coffee. And I felt like a lot of places weren't really concentrating on that. Those, those should be, 
it, the beginning and ending of a meal should be great. And it begins with the host on how they meet, greet you at the door. It ends with them saying goodbye. But those last two bookends are really important. And a lot of people hadn't been concentrated on them because honestly, you can't make a lot of money with coffee in the restaurant world. But Empire has been greatly successful. It's kind of, it, it goes all the way through the day. So there's always somebody there getting something because it's the one restaurant. If you're delayed at Hartsfield and want to go into town, you know that at 3.30 you can get some food and an amazing glass of wine and stuff like that. And rarely are restaurants open in that odd time. So it kind yeah. of services a different crowd in a lot of ways. Do you still spend time? How, how do you spend your time between the three? I kind of float above them in an archangel pattern. Yes. Uh, <laughs> the and, angel uh, Atchison. Yes. And uh, you read a lot of spreadsheets and uh, follow a lot of numbers. But no, I'm, well, I met all of them fairly often. Like I was at Empire a lot this last week. I'll be at 5 and 10 a lot this week. Peter pretty much handles the national. And I've got two coffee shops in Atlanta that kind of check in on and make sure they're running well. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So I, 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 want, I made, made the decision to try and be deliberate in walking through all of this because I think it sets the stage for what you're doing with the podcast, which is what I, I really am interested in talking about. But I wanted to like make sure that we um, went through a little bit of the, the, the background. So we're up to the to the present right now. Uh, Hugh Atchison stirs the pot. Where did the idea for the podcast come from? You know, I got I kind of toyed with the idea for a long time. Um, one of my favorite things I ever did was. Bravo let me do um, blogs to summarizing the episodes of Top Chef. And it just allowed me to be a complete berserk weirdo uh, with humor and writing and uh, just write whatever I wanted. And I don't think anybody edited it. So they just were like, sure, we'll post it. And I was <laughs> making fun of everything under the sun. Um so I've always been a little bit of a sarcastic rabble rouser in some ways. Uh, I'm pretty active on Twitter and say stupid shit there all the time. So, but that's always talking. And I'm totally intrigued at the idea of getting better at podcasting because I want to be a better and better listener. And so I find conversation to be such a beautiful conduit of, of puzzle pieces that when it fits, it's a really natural thing. So that's what the podcast is all about. We went to Himalaya Media, approached me, and we, we did it with them. And we've been really happy with the results. I did mostly episodes all around New York, but it's with a lot of chef people, but a lot of... Then I came back to Athens, and we interviewed Michael Stipe, and went back up to New York and did Adam Platt, who's the amazing New York Magazine dining critic. Um, so it's a mishmash of different people and it's, it's about the industry, but it's also about food as it relates to daily life. It's about a little bit of a politics and, and just shooting the shit with people. Yeah. So what, what made you choose New York or, or did New York choose you in terms of getting this thing off the ground? I think New York chooses you in a lineup and, uh, then they grind you up and spit you right <laughs> on the sidewalk. Um, right. And then you have to rebuild yourself. Um, no, I just chose New York as the concentration of, it would be uh, a relatively rich market for um, calling up friends and having them say yes. And they can't yeah. say no. Right. Right. Uh, and, and, and so I know this first episode is, is Tom Calicchio. Are you uh, at Liberty to share, you know, some of the other guests? Are we allowed to talk about upcoming episodes? Yeah, I've got uh, Carla Hall, who's great. Oh, I've got, she's a D.C. Yeah, she, person, Washington, D.C. native. Yeah, my, she, one of my hometown homies. Yeah, we I interviewed her up in Harlem at this little tiny spot called Sweet Home Harlem, which was great. And then we've got Adam Platt, and then I've got Alex Stupak, who is just the Tasmanian devil of New York Mexican cookery. Uh, Dan Barber. Uh, from Blue Hill at Stone Barn and just uh, uh, Missy Robbins from Missy uh, in Brooklyn. And it's just a, a good motley crew of different people. Anita Lowe, who used to be the chef at Anissa, but is still an amazing, amazing chef and human. Uh, so they're just all over the place. And did you eat uh, during each of these podcasting adventures? 
Yeah, except for the one with Michael uh, Stipe. Uh, Michael has a very eccentric diet these days, so uh, I tried to make him some tea, but didn't have the right organic matcha for him. Oh, boy. But we ate it in all the other ones. Michael drank and, water. And I don't uh, mean to put you on the spot and have you rank anything, but was there a, a memorable meal that distinguished itself from some of the other meals for any reason? I mean, they were all fun. They were all so different. But, you know, the best meal... Right. Adam Platt and I were at, uh, what is it, New Tong uh, Noodle House in Midtown. I always say it's New Tong. It's not New Tong. It's something like that. But um, this woman chef who runs it makes this sandwich with like braised beef shin. And it's kind of the bread's kind of like a scallion pancake with that scallion. So it's kind of like this uh, Chinese flatbread. And then there's kind of the special sauce, this braised beef scallions and some pickles and then this uh kind of freaké of of cheese curds oh and my god it seemed so wacko weird and it was like both adam platt and i who's uh, adam platt's eaten like five humans and 87 million meals in his life he was like i think this is the best sandwich i've ever had it was like amazeballs it was like unreal how did you guys for the first time since 1993 <laughs> you you have kids you can say amazeballs what, yeah, you um, got to. How did y'all come up with with that place and 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 you know whose idea was it to go have a sandwich there? I think it was just mutual discussion between uh, some of us and the production crew on where we should go, and uh, it, it's nice to go to places that are kind of like a little bit off the beaten path, and and yeah, that not, not everybody's going to, but but they're you can shine a light on, and this that sandwich is like unreal. So I feel like I'm going to be doing myself a disservice when we publish this and we'll put it out and probably put up a picture of the sandwich because now it's going to be 50 times harder to get in there um, to, to get one of these. But I, I think we owe it to all of our culinary comrades out there to, to, to put a little shine on this this beautiful thing, right? Oh, yeah, you got to. You got to get it out there. And we, when when is that episode run of, of your podcast? Is that soon? That's going to be, there's a new one every Tuesday, and that one will be, I'm not sure exactly when that's coming out. Okay, oh, well, that, that's, it I've got it. It's, it's called the JB Melt Sandwich, and it's Little Tong in the East, uh, she's got Little Tong in the East Village, and this is her new one in Midtown called Little Tong Noodle Shop. It was, oh man, there's, oh, like, amazing. And there's I'm a dying. picture of it. Okay. Well, we're we're going to publicize it and probably make it impossible for anybody to get in there easily and get it. And the lunch crowd in Midtown is going to be mad at us. But, you know. If I was there right so, now, I would seamless like tenable. <laughs> um, I, I have one other thing that I want to uh, cover with you. You and I met last year. Um, it was less than a year ago. In Augusta, Georgia, you came down for the Masters Golf Tournament, and you well, I was cooked... golfing in it. And uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not that. I'm not that good. Not well. Are, are you a golfer? No, God, no. Oh, okay. Well, no, I mean, I, if you I, were, I so, some some chefs, it's it's a it's not not an uncommon thing. A lot of chefs golf just to let I off. I don't understand how those guys have time to golf. <laughs> well, you know what? This is a good segue into what I want to talk about because at this dinner um you cooked and every and described what you're cooking and then the, and everybody enjoyed it and it was it was absolutely delicious in the end you talked about this project that you're associated with this uh you you know in your role as a food education advocate called seed life skills and you did a little pitch for the group to think about you know making donations or thinking about how to support seed life skills. And I was kind of blown away by it. And, and, you know, uh, right there in that moment, um, decided I must have you on this podcast to talk about this thing because it, it is, uh, you know, something that really feels like it could belong in every city in, in the country. Um, what was the inspiration for seed life skills? What is it and, and how did it come about? 
So, so first that day, so we're, we're doing this dinner or whatever, and there are a bunch of guests and you're included and, uh, at this beautiful mansion in Augusta, they didn't tell me that I was supposed to present all the food like that and basically give a cooking class and a dog and pony show. So I had no <laughs> idea. I thought I was just showing up to cook some food. So it's taken a bit of back by that, but we, yeah. we did it. We got it off and it was fun, but seed life skills was a reaction to what I saw as, Hey, look, you know, we, we update our phones, what, probably 10 times a year with yep. updates and operating system, whatever. And family and consumer sciences, or what used to be called home ec, hasn't really changed for 50 years. As the world's changed at a rapid, rapid pace around it. And what I, what I now perceive as what we need to teach everybody, every kid in this world needs to learn some basics of cooking and living to get them through their most difficult time in life, which is like 18, 19, 20, you got nothing. You're working into it. You're figuring out, you're trying to get a career path. You're having trouble making ends meet. But if you know how to poach an egg and roast a chicken and make a vinaigrette, maybe life's a lot easier. Maybe it's just skill sets that we're missing. And it's not teaching recipes. It's teaching technique because technique is like riding a bike. If you know how to sear a piece of fish, you always know how to sear a piece of fish. If you know how to cook broccoli properly, you always know how to do that. Those aren't recipes. They're all just technique. But what if we, so my seed life skills redevelops home ec curriculums into retainable life skills for kids. And it's all live in my county of Clark County um, in four middle schools with a program that we started three, four or five years ago now. And, but the, Curriculum lives online and it's free. It's free for any school system in the world to download. And it's just a seedlifeskills.org. And you can go on there and get the complete curriculum. And because we're not out to make money on it, we just want to make sure that everybody's armed with skill sets to make them better humans in the foreseeable future. That if they can feed themselves and provide nourishment, that we're one step closer to being their, them being really good citizens and giving within a community and giving to their families and their friends and whatever. Well, I, I um, r remain uh, as blown away by the concept and the way that you're, you're doing it um, now is when I first heard about it last year. How can folks uh, make donations? They can go to seedlifeskills.org and make donations there. Um, or they can just, you know, the best thing to do is we don't need much money because the curriculum's already done. I won't turn it down because we can always make it bigger. But what they can do is just tell their local school districts to consider downloading it and consider getting pieces of it or the whole thing into the curriculum set. It works. It's all STEAM and STEM oriented. Usually those are elective courses that don't need to be, but we're, we're looking at data that's showing a trend that kids who do this course do better in all their courses because we've kind of made sure to uh, relate it always to math and science and Maillard reaction and ratios in food and all those things that just help form a better brain. I'm and, still working and on my own brain, but yeah. <laughs> um, beyond the the local um, schools that that have adopted the curriculum, have you been able to to persuade some other school systems to pick it up? It's been downloaded over like two thousand times everywhere from New Zealand to Africa and various places. So I'm just unsure of exactly how much they've implemented into the school systems, but we're seeing it being used um, at a pretty formidable pace. Yeah, that that that's incredible. Um, so seed, I'm gonna life me, I'm skills. Seedlifeskills.org. Yeah, S E E D L I F E skills.org. Chef Hugh Atchison. Uh, the podcast is Hugh Atchison stirs the pot. You can get it wherever you get your podcast. Thanks for coming on today, my man. Who's gonna win the NCAA championship? Who's gonna win the NCAA championship? Make your early pick. It's Duke. Yeah, it's yeah. Duke. There's there's no yeah, competition for they, Duke. He well, he's the best. They have the best player in in the United States. The second coming of LeBron. Yeah, I know he's awesome, but man, Virginia is killing it. Yeah, I Virginia needs to do some some. Uh, they they they're on a redemption routine right now. Losing the first round last year was not good. Not good. No, that's true. That's true. Well, thanks for having me on. You rock. you're the best. You're the best. Thank you, Chef. Okay. Thanks, brother. Good times. Thanks, man. 
Boom. There we go, Hungry Homies. My thanks to Danny Chow and Chef Hugh Atchison, of course. Check out at the House of Carbs for all that's going down in food town. How about this? I'm going to two Steven Star restaurants here in Washington, D.C. Back to back. Tonight is Lay Diplomat. The Seafood Tower shall be ordered and it shall be consumed. Tomorrow night, my first visit to St. Anselm's. Uh, they're calling it the Punk Rock Steakhouse. They have one other version of this up in Brooklyn. They came down and opened one up. Chef Marjorie Meek Bradley is in the house, and I'm very excited to check it out. So check the Instagram at the House of Carbs. There shall be pictures of seafood towers and meat. Until next week, my hungry homies, let's stay hungry out there.